Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn, I think, about the nature of anger and why I've lost most of mine, actually. Not all of it, but most of it. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I think you should plan on listening to this episode more than once. Today's show is the result of uh, years of evolution of thought, dozens if not hundreds of hours of listening, and more dozens or hundreds of hours of extracurricular contemplation. I wouldn't expect for everything to sink in all at once. I have personally listened to everything you're about to hear probably a dozen times, and it hasn't all fully sunken in yet. So as I said, this is the story of how I lost my anger. And to be clear, not an instruction manual for what I think you should do or how you should feel. Uh, so for me, this all began, uh, you know, right after or you know during the 2016 election or or, or just after the election. Uh, Arlie Russell Hochschild, the author of Strangers in Their Own Land, and that that was where all, you know all the smart people were turning to her to say, "Explain Trump voters to me," and we're not going to do that today. But that's where this process started. That's where I began to lose my anger and have it replaced with understanding. And then not too long after that, you know, the Richard Spencers of the world and the, the Charlottesville uh, marches led us to ask very similar questions, except this time about white supremacists. Why are they here? Where have they come from? What do they want? So these first two clips I have exemplify this idea of coming to understand white supremacists. And the first, uh, just for context, is part of an examination of Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers. And we'll be hearing more about that later. The reason I'm asking about your experiences with Richard Spencer is because uh, I've been really stuck on this this sort of ethical position that Fred Rogers took, which is that it's, it's you. I like, I like you just the way you are, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how that squares with people who were like Richard Spencer. Mm -hmm. Could Fred Rogers say, I like you just the way you are. And I, I, I know you can't speak for him. So I'm going to ask you to speak for you. Did you, when you look at him, see anything that you felt compassion for when you talked with Richard Spencer or some of these other white nationalists? So, uh, the thing is, the, the, when I think about the, I like you just the way you are, when you sit down with people individually, mm. a lot of times all that stuff, a lot of the bluster goes away. Like when I talked to the Klan in, uh, in, in, was it in Kentucky? It became very clear to me after a while, like, oh, you guys have come from a community where there's no jobs, there's no opportunity, your educational system isn't good, and you're just mad. Mm. And you have bought a bill of goods from somebody that is black people's fault. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the problem mm. is that, that you went from like, I want more opportunity and more jobs in my community to it's got to be somebody's fault. And then somebody sold you. Can we talk to you about black people? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they handed you the it's black people fault. pamphlet. <laughs> and so for me, when I take away the when I look at that part, I go, that's the part I could have empathy with. Mm. You know, these people are not the billionaire people who are mm -hmm. sort of running this country and, and using tools of white supremacy to keep things going. These are people who are like got sold a bill of goods based on being vulnerable. As far as the Internet goes, 
you know, let me paint a picture of uh, who may be on the internet. It's not just our friends and, 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 you know, dog pictures, but there are millions of marginalized, alienated, broken, uh, young people, uh, who are looking for identity, community, and purpose in real life and can't find it there, but they can find it online. And the internet has become flooded uh, since the 2016 election and even just before that by propaganda and conspiracy theories coming in from Eastern Europe and from Russia. And it's very difficult to not land on some of this propaganda. But they're also going to some of the most, uh, the places where some of the most vulnerable people are, uh, depression forums, online uh, autism forums. They're talking to our children over headsets when they're playing multi-player uh, gaming, and they're trying to recruit them with these narratives that are mimicking what the president is saying. And because there are so many people online who are not able to potentially establish those relationships in real life, they can build whatever identity, community, and purpose they want. And the narratives are being given to them. And this has become the fastest growing underground social movement that I've ever seen in my life. What do you mean online um, autism forums? So discussion forums where, where people are discussing, uh, you know, living with autism or even Facebook groups. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. They're going to where our, where vulnerable people go to find help, uh, to talk to other people. Uh, or even where, you know, young people might go where they're looking for that sense of identity, community, and purpose. This is really no different than what I used to do 30 years ago when I used to look for vulnerable people outside of arcades or outside of, uh, punk rock concerts or skate parks. Because the idea is you're banking on the fact that somebody there is going to feel marginalized, is going to have what I call potholes that deviated their path, those things that appear in life like trauma, abuse, uh, poverty, mental illness, that maybe alienate them from the rest of society, and then they promise them paradise. So hopefully you don't mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you during today's show, uh, sort of walk you through and, and fill in some gaps. So as I said, th- this loss of anger it started with conversations like this, where the more I learned about these people who create horrible oppression and and do damage to either individuals or society as a whole, the more I, I came to understand where they were coming from the less anger I had. And I I still couldn't really describe what it was I was feeling. Was it just empathy? Did it extend all the way to understanding and forgiveness? You know, I I really don't know. All I knew for sure was that my anger was melting away, even though I wasn't sure why. And then I think I got some clarity. This is about two and a half years ago from this story from your friend and mine, Dr. Roger Ray. We have reasons to be angry, lots of them, lots of very good reasons. In fact, I would be kind of worried about someone if they weren't angry, if they, if they, did, if they knew so little about what was going on or cared so little about what was going on in the world, if they didn't gen up some genuine rage from time to time, but pastorally from a, from a spiritual perspective. And I know my gig, uh, is, a progressive commentary on current events. But if you'll let me just, maybe I should have worn vestments today, uh, put on the pastoral role. I want to ask you to slow down and think a little bit about how these emotions are making decisions for us. Our emotions should be our servants, not our masters. 
I keep asking people to turn their anger into action, to do something. Don't just get mad. Get involved. Make a plan. Make a difference. But the truth about anger is much more complicated than just the fight-or-flight reaction that comes out of our brainstem. Many years ago, my eldest uncle was dying, and my father and I went to see Uncle Presley in his home on Lake Michigan near Chicago. And shortly after we arrived, I saw my father get angry about how dirty the house was. He was just flying into a rage, wanted to fire the housekeeper. And and then we stepped outside, and he became enraged about how poorly the lawn and garden were being kept. And he wanted to go next door right then and fire the teenage boy that Uncle Presley paid to take care of his lawn. And I'd been around enough to know that my widower uncle was very lonely, and that the likely thing was that when the cleaning lady came over, she spent more time sitting and talking with Uncle Presley than she did vacuuming and dusting. And probably the young man who had grown up next door to him was doing the same thing, that they were sitting and talking about the garden that he loved and not just pulling weeds and trimming. And it dawned on me that what was really going on was that my father was horrified by the looming death of a man who had been more than a brother to him. There was 20 years difference in their age, and and Uncle Presley had been a father to my dad and and had uh, been a real resource to him, a defender, an inspiration, a guide. And my dad wasn't really mad at the cleaning lady or the gardener. He was mad at death. He was frightened by mortality. He was afraid of the impending loss of a man that he loved and that he wasn't quite sure that he could live without. What he needed to do, unfortunately what my father could never do, was to tell Presley that he loved him, that he was going to miss him, that he was sorry that he was slipping away, and, and that he needed to thank him for all that he had done for him and for his family, which was considerable. He needed to be able to say goodbye. But in a man's world of the Old South, such sentiments, while felt, were never allowed to see the light of day. There could be no tears. (laughs) There could be precious little affection, and joy was rare enough. But the macho emotion of anger, that's always available. That's the go-to emotion. That's manly. Deceptively, anger presents itself as strength, even threatening. It suggests confidence and courage. What's surprising, though, is to realize that the root of anger is fear often irrational fear. The fight-or-flight response is fundamentally a survival instinct. It's a fear response. When we're scared, adrenaline dumps into our our blood uh, supply, our pulse quickens, and though we may shout and growl, we're not suddenly courageous lions. We are, in fact, nothing but a frightened little bunny afraid of the monsters and looking for a place to hide. As sad as the death of my wonderful and loving uncle was, it gave me the first real insight I ever had into understanding my own father. 
It gave me a chance as well to be forgiving for a childhood that was literally terrorized by his frequent temper fits. That he wasn't really at the core a tyrant or a bully. He was just scared. He was an old soldier traumatized by too much violence, a man who had seen too many people die, and a man who couldn't control the world around him or his own emotions. Thomas Akempis wrote in the Imitatio Christi, the Imitation of Christ, that to fully understand is to fully forgive. There's a modern proverb that teaches that holding on to resentment is very much like drinking poison in order to kill your enemies. What so many people, especially men, and I think especially men in red states from rural southern roots, which is my tribe, we keep turning to anger as a way of responding to our fears and our frustrations, our sense of powerlessness, without ever realizing that that anger is poison. So the operative phrase in there that that really struck me was to fully understand is to fully forgive. It it struck me like lightning when I heard it, and it stuck with me ever since. And it felt like that must be what's happening. The closer I get to understanding, the more forgiveness I feel. On the other hand, though, forgiveness just doesn't feel right. To forgive those who uphold oppression, even if they're not aware of the damage they're doing— it seems to only serve to maintain that oppression. So that that can't be what I'm doing, right? Uh, or, or is it that forgiveness is actually a weapon against oppression? Here's more from the podcast Finding Fred about Mr. Rogers. When I look around, I see a lot of fear and anger and frustration and and a feeling that things are rapidly getting worse in a, in a myriad of ways and people feeling helpless and hopeless. I wonder if you can imagine what kind of show he would make today. Do you think he would continue along the same path or would he find that he would have to do something different? That's such a good question and I can't begin to imagine that I know what he would do, but I think the underlying topic uh, that Fred was so interested in perhaps centers around this idea of empathy. Fred's show is about confronting struggles and conflicts rather than evading them. People of different ideas, different values, trying to work out their differences and still uh, operate on an assumption of trust and respect for one another. And I think Fred's work very strongly conveyed that a community is a place where not everyone has to look the same, not everyone even have to have the same interests or choose to live the same way. Um, A community is simply a place where very diverse people get to live together, to listen to one another, and work through the differences that they have. I think in a fearful world, 
we have a tendency to accentuate every aspect that is different between person one and person two. And as much as Fred wanted to convey the message that all of us are different and unique and special, Fred's underlying message, though, is we are much more the same than we're different. And that paradoxically, by pointing out the uniqueness of each individual, we actually come to understand our common humanity. And that, to me, is perhaps the spiritual root of empathy, to be able to see the full humanity of the person that we might fear. Mm. You know, that is such a, a weighty and heavy concept in this time. Um, we live in a world in which there are systemic abuses of people, and people feel the need to defend themselves, not just against individuals, but against systems. And and I think a lot of times in those cases, people feel like there's there's a there's a threat to their survival that comes with that empathy. That in order to protect themselves and their families and who they love, they can't allow themselves that empathy. You know, if you are the, a targeted group in a genocide, is there use for you in finding empathy? for the person on the other side of the fence? Fred often talked about the lesson, the most important lesson that he took from his theology professor in Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which he went to ask this professor one time what this particular hymn means, because the hymn said something about, you know, the the one thing, the one small thing that made evil fall. And so he went to ask the professor, you know, what is this one small thing? And the answer was, the one thing that evil cannot stand is forgiveness. And I think as I read about the era in which my parents and grandparents lived through, I think of a story there was an older gentleman that was very close to my family. He was from West Virginia and became a minister. And he and his wife and son were missionaries in China. And after the World War II broke out, they were taken by the Japanese and put inside a fairly brutal concentration camp. And one of the commanders of the camp were humane to the American prisoners. And the minister, his name is Joe, years later, he sat down in a Japanese house across the table from the commander of the concentration camp, and the two of them shared a tea, a cup of tea. And, and I just think of these things. They're almost illogical, but... They are a reflection of 
the fundamental trust that human beings, as much as they're capable of evil and hatred, and, and as much as all of us have our fears and defensiveness, that in the end, I think, when Fred tells us that we are special, he meant that there's something deep down inside each of us, not just some of us, but each of us, without which humanity cannot survive. In his public service announcements uh, following September 11th, mm-hmm. he invoked, I think, the Jewish saying that essentially means we are called to be repairers of creation. And we can understand that in more broadly outside the religious context is somehow that each of us are called to be repairers of creation. And what does repairing mean? As someone who doesn't directly experience almost any aspect of structural oppression, I find it very easy to stop right here, to see forgiveness as something that may be hard, but is ultimately beneficial to the cause of justice. Of course, things are never as easy as the privileged want them to be. Each of us is called to be a repairer of creation. But how do we do that? I think for everyone, though the question is the same, the answer can be different. Not all of us can sit down to tea with someone who represents the violent forces of the state. The man from West Virginia that Jun Lei talked about could, but many of us cannot, and maybe should not. And there's good reason for that. If someone breaks into your home and harms your family or loved ones in some violent way, and then I decide to sit down with them the next day for a pleasant tea under the guise of forgiveness and radical empathy, that may be a dramatic, heroic act for me, but it might be incredibly disrespectful and harmful to you. We're told all the time that the ultimate act of love is to forgive the people who have hurt you, and that anything less is a shortcoming. Maybe an understandable one, but a shortcoming nonetheless. Something to get over. But who benefits most from the quick and incessant march toward forgiveness? Isn't it often those who commit the heinous act to begin with? Don't they want, deeply want, for their victims to hug them and declare that it's all good? Wouldn't you? Have you ever harmed someone? Have you ever participated in or benefited from someone's harm? Wouldn't you want them to forgive you? The idea of forgiving one's enemies, loving one's enemies, is a beautiful one, and maybe even an ideal one, but it's also a complicated one. Sometimes an act of love and caring toward an oppressor is an act of harm toward the oppressed or toward ourselves. TV writer Megan Amram, a brilliant person in her own right, put this idea very succinctly on Twitter. Quote, you can't be nice to everyone because being nice to certain people is inherently cruel to others.
And now to explore this further, there was a story from last fall that does a really good job of exemplifying the divide between the help and the harm that can come not just from forgiveness, but the expectation of forgiveness. Okay, moving on to our second topic, and that is the conviction and sentencing of Amber Geiger, a white police officer in Dallas who shot and killed her black neighbor, Botham Shem John, in September of last year. According to Geiger, she mistook his apartment for hers after she had just gotten off her shift. Weird. Her apartment was directly under Jean's on the third floor. Geiger overlooked all the signs that this wasn't her home and said that she thought that Jean, who was eating a bowl of ice cream, watching television, was a burglar. Geiger shot and killed him. Yeah, because you know what? When you're sitting down watching TV. Eating a bowl of ice cream. And you're a black man. Yeah. Yes, of course you would be confused with a burglar, of course. You must be a threat. Mm. In your own home, right? So Geiger, this week, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. There's a lot of people who were actually surprised that she was convicted at all. She was only the second police officer since 1973 to be convicted of murder in Dallas. Damn. And after she was sentenced, the, the courtroom was emotional. And there was a moment that got a lot of attention when Jean's brother told Geiger that he forgave her and then hugged her. And then you see the judge in the case, Tammy Kemp. She also went to Geiger and consoled and hugged her. Strange. It was like this woman murdered somebody in cold blood. Right. He carried all of the worst stereotypical ideas about a black man and embodied it. Right. And, you know, Jean left behind a family who loved him, who will miss him. Yeah. And everybody is consoling her. Obviously, a lot of layers here about forgiveness and how personal it is. But I really, really loved what Dr. Eddie Gloud, who is a great friend of the show and of ours, also a fantastic ITT all-star. I really love what Eddie had to say about this on MSNBC this Thursday. So as Brad John expressed uh, his, his, his undying love for Christ, and he did it in forgiving Amy Geiger, there was still the demand that uh, uh, Amy Geiger be held accountable for her actions in a way that was just and fair. What was interesting is in Jean's uh, testimony, he sounded like a prison abolitionist. He said he didn't even want her to go to jail. So this is not a matter about giving her a harsher sentence. Where you stand on the issue is that you just want justice, right? And so I think it's important for us to see that there's a, mo there's a moment where you can express one's faith in the way that Jean exemplified, and at the same time express one's anger. There was no judge who hugged Tamir, Tamir Rice's mama. There was no judge who paid attention to what was going on with Tanya McDonald. Uh, McDowell. There was no judge who, who actually spoke to the differential between Felicity Hoffman getting 14 days and that woman getting five years. And so it makes sense that people can be angry about the systemic unfairness in our criminal justice system and yet, and yet exhibit profound grace and love in a moment of tragedy. When we think about the power of restorative justice, yeah, that's what it looks like. Right. I mean, the capacity to forgive yeah. means that you are not carrying the weight mm. because we all carry all kinds of stuff. But when you make this decision to forgive, what you're really doing is you're freeing yourself. Right. So this is what, in fact, his brother was doing was in many ways freeing himself by offering this hug. 
I love the notion of, of this being part of a prison abolition movement. I mean, this is a beautiful thing that is happening in our country, conversation about restorative justice or prison abolition. The reality check, though, is that we have a private prison industry mm. that only cashes in when it has a body in a cell. And therefore, this push for restorative justice, um, you know, prison abolition is going to be met head on with the private prison industry that is going to say, no, we need to put more people in prison. I'm, I'm glad you heard what Eddie said, because like I said, to me, he summarized a lot of the feelings that I was going through about this case this week, because one of the things that I believe is being misrepresented when it comes to the hug is that black people can forgive white people. And, and there's a part of me that's like, this is sort of like black survival in white supremacy. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is just not one example and I feel like this is going to be misrepresented as sort of like, oh, compassion. And we live in this post-racial society. This is such a complex story. And if people feel anger and forgiveness at the same time, I think that's the reality here. Right, Maria? It represents a lot of things to a lot of different people. Mm. But everyone in the family, you know, had their own reaction and interpretation of what happened. Alison Jean, the mother of Bothenshem Jean, this is what she had to say. Yesterday... We saw the conviction of Amber Geiger, and today we heard the sentence of 10 years in prison. That 10 years in prison is 10 years for her reflection and for her to change her life. But there is much more to be done by the city of Dallas. The corruption that we saw during this process must stop. And it must stop for you. Because after now, I leave Dallas, but you live in Dallas. And it must stop for everyone. So I'm getting more and more evidence that forgiveness with no strings attached clearly isn't the way to go. I, I don't want to go down that path. But as it turns out, there's actually a debate about what forgiveness really means anyway. And to be clear, I'm not religious now, nor have I ever been, but I still put up a Christmas tree each year, which is only the most visible reminder that you really can't live in a society without being influenced to some degree by the tenets of the dominant culture. So we're going to take a little dive into the influence of Christian teachings on forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that is frequently misunderstood as a kind of weakness, of kind of letting people get away with things. That's Reverend Mark Schaefer, the chaplain at American University. He spoke with our producer, Stephanie Lecce, about what role forgiveness plays in our culture and in faith traditions. Theologically, forgiveness has to be understood from a position of strength. The concept of forgiveness itself is an economic term. I mean, it it's related to debt forgiveness. And so when you think of the creditor versus the debtor, when you realize who in that situation 
has the power? Is it the creditor or is it the one who has the debt? It's clearly the creditor who has the power. So it's not meant to come from a place of weakness or victimization, meaning that you have to forgive those who are oppressing you or those who are abusing you. It comes from a position of strength and power where you have every right to exact some kind of penalty and nevertheless choose to forego exacting that penalty. Now, many religious traditions value the concept or or the ability of people to forgive. Can you give us kind of a, a brief understanding of the different iterations of this idea of forgiveness in religious traditions? Forgiveness is something that we hope for from God, that therefore we model forgiveness toward one another. In the Christian Lord's Prayer, the forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is meant to highlight that connection. As God is merciful, so we too are merciful. And so what it becomes in many religious traditions is an expression of God's mercy that we have already received. And so forgiveness then becomes an important spiritual value and also a recognition that we are in need of forgiveness. That's really where it comes from, is the idea that we are imperfect, we are sinful, we have done terrible things, and we rely on God's forgiveness. Therefore, let us also extend forgiveness. Um, You see that in much of the prophetic tradition in Judaism. You see that in Christianity and a lot of Jesus's parables. And you see that in the Islamic tradition, where God is presented as oft forgiving, oft merciful. Now, is there a difference between the common cultural understanding of of forgiveness and forgiveness as you've described in, in some of these religious traditions? Absolutely, I think there is, because I think what forgiveness is seen in our culture, as I sort of hinted at earlier, is basically capitulation or weakness. You know, that is, I do something to you, and then you're expected to forgive me. And that if you forgive me, then basically... I've gotten away with something. And I think that that is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean there are no consequences, which is how I think people perceive it, is that if you forgive something, then it's as if it never happened. And that's not the case either. For If we go back to the creditor-debtor illustration, if I'm the bank and you owe me a million dollars, I might forgive your debt, but I'm never going to lend you a million dollars again, right? There's So you're free of the consequences of this wrong, but that doesn't mean that going forward, it's reset to zero. There are still consequences even when forgiveness is extended. So I think that's something where in our culture, we tend to view forgiveness really as softness or weakness, you know, rather than really a a statement of power coming from the place of one who is saying, no, I have the right to demand satisfaction from you, but I, in my power, am choosing not to exercise that right and claiming the the narrative in in that way. The other major difference is if you look at the, the biblical model of forgiveness, forgiveness actually comes before repentance. In the biblical model, God forgives first, and then the people repent. That is, then the people make amendment for what they have done wrong. In fact, the Hebrew word for repentance, teshuva, literally means turning around. So it's a kind of a, if you think of the metaphor this way, of God sort of calling out to an estranged, alienated people, come back, I forgive you, and then inviting them to turn around and re-enter relationship. It means that the forgiveness comes first, which again, 
highlights just how much forgiveness is a statement of power rather than a statement of obligation imposed upon the person against whom something has been done. But just as things are never as simple as the privileged wish, the roots of the various tools of oppression generally run much deeper than almost any of us realize. Former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger has been sentenced to 10 years for the 2018 death of Texas man Botham Jean. Geiger's sentencing was yesterday, but what people are still talking about is the show of emotion that happened in the courtroom. Shortly after Geiger was sentenced, Botham's brother, Brant Jean, told the court that he forgave Geiger for his brother's death and gave her a hug. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. Judge Tammy Kemp, who presided over the case, also hugged Geiger and gave Geiger her personal Bible, telling her, quote, you need a tiny mustard seed of faith. You start with this. It begs a few questions. Would Geiger have been treated this way if she was black? Are black people compelled to forgive those who hurt them? Today, I'm talking with Real News host Jacqueline Lukeman about why this story is so compelling. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So we were talking a little bit uh, before the camera started rolling about how you heard about what happened in the courtroom, ironically, a little bit after you came home from church, because a lot of the conversation was around how it was so great that the victim's family was being so forgiving and how that's a Christian thing to do. What was your take on that? Well, my take is that people, especially Christians and particularly black Christians, have a very skewed interpretation of the doctrine of forgiveness as it's preached and taught in especially American uh, Christian churches. We are taught that we're supposed to, especially black people, are taught that we're never supposed to be angry at what is done to us. And it doesn't matter if it's someone who steals from us uh, or, or if it's uh, an example of, of extrajudicial killing of an unarmed black person uh, by law enforcement, we're just never supposed to be angry. We're always supposed to be meek and humble, and we're supposed to automatically, immediately forgive uh, whatever anyone does to us. And that is a doctrine that is not biblical. It's a misinterpretation of what forgiveness is in the biblical sense. Um, And it's also not a form of forgiveness that's practiced by many white Christians. So there are a lot of different angles in that where we can look at how white supremacist ideology has misinterpreted and warped scriptures to control um, at first uh, formerly enslaved people and enslaved people and how those scriptures came out of an ideology of supporting empire in the first place when they were written. Um, because we're talking about the difference between the epistles uh, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which directly confronts and challenges unjust authority. But the what's taught around forgiveness in the Bible is usually centered around the epistles or the letters that came after the gospel that focus a lot on obeying all kinds of authority. And that's what we're taught. 
Another quick interjection, but this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode, which is C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. This election season, go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. On C-SPAN, you'll find in-depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to Election Day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, rallies, and more live as they happen on C-SPAN. Then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at c-span.org, all brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. Taking abuse, and by extension the pain of survivors, seriously and taking action to prevent harm are what we are focusing on this week. Last time we heard how the pressure to forgive an abuser can be an enormous roadblock in a survivor's healing journey. As Reverend Mark Schaefer had put it, a warped concept of forgiveness can actually erase the accountability of an abuser. Forgiveness is seen in our culture as, if you forgive me, then basically I've gotten away with something. That is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness really is. But how do we hold abusers accountable? And how do we root out such behaviors within our religious traditions? We turn first to Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and the first woman to hold that title. She says that sexual and domestic abuse has long been an institutional problem for churches. From the start of religion itself, in the Hebrew Bible and then on into the New Testament, it has been church sanctioned. The church has come along and said, uh, this is God's will. God thinks that men are superior to women and therefore women must be submissive to them. That women's sexuality is therefore uh, men to be able to use and take advantage of as they will. And that women's bodies are not their own, but belong to men in a way that takes away their own agency. Jones echoes Reverend Schaefer, noting that forgiveness can sometimes be used against the interest of a survivor. She says deep forgiveness is actually part of a larger process of seeking justice. Unfortunately, in the Christian tradition, which I'm the most familiar with, uh, this very rich notion of forgiveness, which is about um, healing wounds and harms and cultivating the soil where new life can grow, has been cheapened and has been turned into something trivial and has indeed been flipped around and used as a weapon, oftentimes against victims, to allow them to not hold their perpetrators accountable. So in Christianity, we oftentimes have forgiveness doing the opposite of what it's supposed to do with respect to healing real harm. Deep forgiveness, which tied to accountability, which is a tied to changing the dynamics that created injustice and harm and addressing the harms done so that true healing occurs. That is part of the heart of forgiveness itself. But justice, I would say, is uh, another effect of true forgiveness 
an undoing of unequal power relations where harm is allowed to happen is another benefit of forgiveness. Honesty and truth-telling, the chance to say what really happened, to set the record straight, and to allow when harm occurs honest reflection on it is um, yet another benefit of it. And the benefits go on. The greatest benefit of all is it allows us to go back as a culture, as individuals, look at harms of the past and actively create ways that we can move forward without repeating the harms. Ah, yes, power dynamics. That's the ingredient to the secret sauce of our society that people tend to forget about. Now, as it turns out, I made a whole episode about apologies and forgiveness last year when a bunch of politicians were half-heartedly apologizing for having been racist. I think it makes a great companion piece to today's episode. And here's something else that I've never done before. I'm actually going to play something that I said on that previous episode because I just happen to think I addressed the point so well. I want there to be a lot more forgiveness in the world, but you don't get that in in a healthy way by going around and telling people to be more forgiving unless you are also helping change the power dynamics so that the aggrieved parties have more than just the strength to forgive, but the power from which to forgive uncoerced. And there's a bonus clip that the members are going to be hearing that gets to this point in a really good way, but I'll tell you the quick story here. A Mormon girl was assaulted by a Mormon boy, and for religious reasons, the church put pressure on her to forgive him. The power dynamic was not in her favor. She wasn't allowed to forgive on her own terms or her own schedule, and being pressured in that circumstance only made her feel more disempowered, and she ultimately lost her faith over it. So yeah, I, I want there to be a lot more forgiveness in the world because it's it's a good and healthy thing to do on the individual and the social levels. But I'm not going to go around telling women they need to forgive their assaulters or people of color that they need to forgive the police, for instance, without also advocating for legislation and changes to social norms that help balance out the power dynamics so that forgiveness can finally be given freely from a position of equal footing. And one of the ways we shift that power is through better use of apologies on both the personal and societal levels. And there's one major example of this. That is why the abundance of Confederate statues and the relative lack of slave and lynching memorials is so destructive to our national psyche. It is a physical manifestation of one side refusing to apologize, which means that there can be no forgiveness given from a position of power. So the wounds remain open and healing cannot yet begin. So maybe forgiveness really is what I'm talking about, as long as we're making sure to use the original Christian definition and always keep power dynamics in mind. Then again, language changes and no one knows the original meaning, so I'm going to spend all my time explaining the definitions of the words I'm using. 
And then I came across another term, maybe more familiar to others than it was to me, and maybe it's better suited, if for no other reason than that a lot fewer people have a really firm understanding of its meaning. Fred Rogers grew up during the Depression, through World War II and the Holocaust. He had seen how horrible people could be to one another, and his show spoke to that. It launched just months before Bobby Kennedy's assassination, and Fred made a PSA in response to it. And just a few weeks after he officially retired, he made another PSA, right after September 11th. We've talked about how Fred didn't want to do the announcement at all. In the face of such enormous violence and tragedy, he said he couldn't see how it would do any good. But he did it anyway. The writer and educator Eve Ewing, who you remember from episode two, was watching. There's this video that I've watched a lot where he addresses us as adults. You know, he's saying... Sometimes I see you all on the streets. I run into you, those of you who grew up in the neighborhood, you know. And when I see you, I tell you, just like I did when you were very small, that I'm, I'm just so proud of you, you mm. know, and I like you just the way you are. A lot of people who heard Fred's PSA took comfort in his message, look for the helpers. But Eve heard something else. He is talking to you as an individual, but now as an adult. And that's his opportunity to say something else or to like break this character. And the thing he chooses to say is, I still see you. I'm still proud of you and see the child in you. And I think that when we talk about forgiving people and not believing in monsters, to me, that's what much of that amounts to is knowing that everybody was somebody's child, you know, who has been hurt or who's been afraid or who's been trying their best to learn or who's been trying to be resilient in a difficult situation. You know, I've um, done a fair amount of teaching in in prisons and the, the prison that I teach in is a maximum security prison where people are there for very long-term or life sentences. And one of the rules that we have is that we don't, we don't ask people like what they did right. or why they're there. Right. I know just from history that like 99%, if not a hundred percent of the people that I'm dealing with in that space are there because of the drug war, mm. are there because of poverty, are there because of unresolved trauma in their own lives. And the idea that like one out of those 100 might just actually be a psychopath mm. doesn't make it worth it for me to focus on that, to me, remote possibility when I could be focusing on like the human conversation that we're going to have. And so to me, that's that's the idea of of grace is just like assuming... Even if you can't quite work your way up to loving people, which is like the Jesus standard, and it's okay for us to not all be Jesus, at least understanding that people are human beings and not, not monsters. You've heard me ask a lot of people how I like you just the way you are applies to those who hurt us, who hurt others, who are hurting whole groups of people and tearing apart families and communities and institutions that do good in the world. Would Fred Rogers like them just the way they are? Eve says that's the wrong question. We spend a lot of time asking the question, like, what about the bad people? Like, are we adequately punishing the bad people? Which usually is a distraction from making sure that the person who's actually been hurt is okay. And... We've set up a society where 
we tend to be really obsessed with punishing people rather than actually caring for the people that have been harmed. And that is a disregard that shows a disregard for the idea of caring for the least of these. And if you believe that most of those bad things themselves come from undealt with harm, then the best thing that we can do is deal with the harm. So that's more or less where I am now. Currently, without a better term to describe what I think I've been feeling, I'll go with the idea that I feel some kind of grace when it comes to those who are doing harm by unknowingly upholding structures of oppression. You know, in, in essence, refusing to see them as monsters. But I wouldn't be fully honest with myself or with you if I didn't interrogate why I've started to feel this way while others haven't. And of course, it's tempting to think that it's just because I've been learning so much about the nature of society and it's, and you know the causes for all the various factions that emerge and the conflicts that arise, and that this conclusion that I have is the inevitable one that anyone would come to, and maybe I'm just ahead of the game. But as should be no surprise to anyone, I think privilege is once again playing a role. The underlying theme in this examination is the role of fear in fostering anger and suppressing forgiveness and grace. The fear of economic insecurity that leave poor whites vulnerable to the white supremacist bill of goods. The fear of loss of a loved one without the emotional capacity to deal with that inevitability, as we heard in Raptor Ray's story. The fear that people of color rightfully have of being victimized by individuals who are knowingly or unknowingly upholding a system of racial oppression because they themselves have been infected with this myth of white supremacy, which does not have to manifest itself with clan robes, but can just be unjustified fear that leads to the death or the harm to those people of color who evoke that fear in a white person. A big reason that I can feel this way is because I don't have any of those fears. I don't fear for my ability to support myself, or to cope emotionally in the face of change. I don't fear people because of their race, nor that I will be targeted for mine. If I felt any of those things, I'm sure I would think differently. Once again, the host of the Finding Fred podcast. In Mark 14, 7, Jesus says, The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them whenever you want but you will not always have me. The idea is that one day Jesus would leave his followers. Like all things, he was saying, his presence is impermanent. The only permanent thing is that people will still need help, and we must continue to help those who need it. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to be gone, so I'm going to need you to keep on crushing all the bad guys and making sure they learn their lessons. Like Eve said, his focus is not on fixing the bad ones, but on helping the needy ones. But that's hard sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I have to keep an eye on what I'm afraid of or what can hurt me. I have to make sure it's locked away or properly defended against. The things I'm afraid of are so loud and bright and distracting that it's hard to turn my attention away from them, even for a moment. Hard to give up on the idea that my job is to make sure the bad people suffer. 
it's hard to do the quieter and slower and maybe more vulnerable work of tending to the people who've been wounded. I often feel too scared and angry and hurt to do that. I feel like I have too many people to protect. And maybe that's why Fred Rogers was so focused on finding a way to talk about our feelings. Because maybe I can't really help people until I spend a lot of time sitting with my own hurt. So maybe I'm to a point where I have a pretty decent understanding of how I feel and how I came to feel this way. But I, I still have to ask, is it doing any good? You know, my my passion and conviction to make positive change in the world is not diminished at all. I still want to fix all the problems. I still want to undo the damage. I want to stop people from doing harm. So th- this this lack of anger... Is, is it helping? It, how does it feed into my theory of change? Well, it, it, it's a tough one, but uh, Van Jones has addressed this, and I think he says it better than I could. You know, this whole question around tolerance and empathy and understanding and where the limits are is a very, very tough conversation. Um, uh, and I come down in, a, in an odd place. On the one hand... Uh, I think we have to defend very aggressively um, the most vulnerable constituencies in America. Um, Muslims, uh, immigrants, uh, transgender people, LGBT, women, African Americans, uh, low-income people. Um, And I think you have to be aggressive about it. I think you have to be passionate about it. I think you have to be serious about it. If we're going to have liberty and justice for all, and not liberty and justice for some, then we got a lot of work to do. And I think that's important. At the same time, um, there sometimes can be a loss of empathy for those constituencies that may feel that they have to give up something to get to equality. For those of us who are trying to gain something to get to equality, um, we can be very passionate and it feels good. We're, we're making up lost ground over you know, generations of discrimination. We're overcoming that. It feels great. For other people, even just psychologically, they may feel that they're losing ground. And it's sometimes hard for us to have much empathy for that. And we tend to, to go into, well, you know, shut up. <laughs> you know, you guys have had the game to yourselves. You, you Disproportionately, the business leaders and the senators and everything else. And it's our turn and shut up. And that's totally understandable. It just may not work very well uh, because change is hard for people. Um, if you're a liberal, uh, you look at gentrification. Here's a neighborhood that used to have African Americans or Latinos or whatever. And then you go away for five years, you come back and here, you know, the hipsters have come and they set up their kale shops and bikes things everywhere. And you're like, hey, you know, it's like Oakland, California right now. West Oakland is being completely transformed by its proximity to Silicon Valley. And people who work for Google and all these places are now moving into West Oakland, totally changing the place. I sometimes look at that and I go, hey, hold on a second. I liked Oakland the way it was. 
You know, and, and, and if I could build a wall around Oakland and make Silicon Valley pay for it, I might consider that because I liked Oakland the way that it was. Now, that doesn't mean that we should close the borders or that Trump is right. I'm not saying that at all. I think we need more immigration, not less. And I think we need uh, a, a faster pathway for us to steal all the best talent from around the world and the hardest workers uh, rather than slower. I think America is, is, gets to compete better uh, because we get to cheat and get all the good people from everywhere here. But can I have a bridge of empathy and understanding to somebody who says, hey, wait a minute, I, I, I liked America the way that it was when I grew up. I, I liked uh, uh, certain things. I've got some grief now. I've got some anxiety now. I've got some, some, some fear now. Does, do we have to call that person a bigot? Do we have to say that person is a morally deficient human being and push them outside of the, the circle of decent company? Or is there some way for us to say, we don't agree with you, um, we see it differently, but we can understand uh, why there might be some anxiety here. And by the way, you might want to prepare yourself because more change is coming. <laughs> We're going to keep pushing for more change on gender, on sexuality, on the demographics. So more change is coming, and we, but we get it. Sometimes I think people just want to, want to be witnessed in their struggle without being judged and condemned. These are tough conversations to have, you know, and you start talking the way I'm talking, you're going to get hit from all sides. Uh, I'm willing to do it because I just don't think you can have an honest conversation any other way. And the, the, the benefit of having a democracy with 300 million people in it, every color, every human, every faith, every gender, all of us actually working together. I mean, it's worth having some tough conversations and going through some rocky periods to get to that outcome. But um, uh, our intolerance for the intolerant may actually create more intolerance. Our tolerance for the intolerance may leave in place too much intolerance. <laughs> so it's a catch-22 that you can't get through with just your brain. Your heart has got to lead you to some place where you can actually hold on to your principles and hold on to your neighbor at the same time. That's the challenge. No easy answer, but that's what we got to try to do. So I thought that's about all I had to share, you know, the story of how I lost my anger and how it's evolved over multiple years. But as it turns out, stories like this tend to continue to evolve. And it was only a few days ago that the most recent piece of this puzzle fell into place. I just watched King in the Wilderness. It's an HBO documentary about the time between MLK's I Have a Dream speech and his death. And there was this piece of the film where they were discussing why the civil rights movement under King didn't see itself as a struggle between white and black because there were good people in both groups. That's where I heard this from one of King's confidants. We were taught that there were good people and bad people, and we never viewed this as black against white. We're taught that racism was a sickness, and you don't get mad with sick people. They just don't know any better. 
They've been taught that they are better than you. Now, I'm pretty sure I'd heard that phrasing before, that white supremacy is a sickness. But this time, in this documentary, it landed with a lot more gravity than it ever had before. I realized that that was the best way yet that I can try to describe this this feeling, this, this loss of anger, because it explains the difference between overcoming anger and actually losing it. And there's a story about King that I think illustrates this. So Reverend Jesse Douglas is a civil rights leader. He was a friend of King, and he was interviewed, and he had this to say about this story. Quote, This person who was from the American Nazi Party called MLK's name, and when he turned around, he punched him in the face. The guys that were there, they were going to do him in. And Dr. King said, no, brethren, wait a minute. Wait, wait, don't harm him. He is the victim of the indoctrination of hate. And then that's alternately quoted the same story with an alternate quote saying, he's the victim of a sick society. Don't harm him. And that scene, if, if it sounds familiar, it was shown in the movie Selma. And so, you know, we were doing some some background research and just reading a bit after we watched uh, that that film, and Amanda found that story. So she read it, and her reaction was the same as most people. She marveled at the strength it must have taken to react in that way in the moment just after being attacked. But I had a slightly different reaction. I, I don't deny that it takes strength of character to react that way, but I don't think it takes as much as most people believe, if you have the right mindset. As we heard from that clip a minute ago, you just don't get mad with sick people. That's not a thought that would have needed to go through King's mind right in that moment after being punched. It was an understanding of the world that permeated everything about the way he saw the struggle against racism. So being attacked by a Nazi would have been like being attacked by a mental patient in an institution. It's it's scary, it's dangerous, you obviously don't want it to happen, but anger toward a mental patient wouldn't make sense. Having this perspective doesn't require that one overcome their anger or to get past their anger. Anger simply doesn't arise because it doesn't make sense in the context. And this is the best way that I can think to describe why my anger is gone. I haven't overcome it. I haven't moved past it. It simply doesn't arise anymore because I've come to see so many of the ideologies that are bringing harm and oppression to the world as sicknesses. And you just don't get mad with sick people. White supremacy and far beyond Christian supremacy, patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, the the maintenance of strict gender norms, these are all structurally taught systems that cause harm. Unfettered capitalism, hyper-individualism, these things create moral frameworks that convince many to tolerate extreme wealth divides, terrible poverty, and the deaths of thousands due to a lack of access to health care and health insurance— at a time of unprecedented wealth. If that's not a sickness, what is? Militarism, imperialism, American exceptionalism, 
consumerism, climate denialism. I mean, you see how, how, uh, how far I can go with this. I see all of these things as sicknesses of society. We are not born with any of these beliefs. We are infected with them. And when I think of the things that I believe, I can hardly say that I've genuinely chosen to believe them. I believe them because based on my experiences and the information that I have, I can't see a way around believing them. And other people who disagree with me on everything are still just like me in that sense. They believe what they do not out of choice, but very much because it seems that there is no other choice than to believe what they do. Beliefs are founded on the stories we're told. Uh, We more strongly believe the stories that comport with our experiences And our perceptions of our experiences are filtered through the stories that we believe. So it creates a feedback loop. And so by the time you get to the present day belief structure of any grown adult, that belief structure is so muddled with the random circumstances of their lives, like parentage and schooling and the community that they grew up in, pop culture they were exposed to, and their economic status and race and gender and uh, you know all the people they've ever run into in their lives and every story that they've ever been told. It's hard to say that any individual is any more responsible for what they believe than a sick person is responsible for being sick. And I know, I, I know a lot of you will, will want to say people have plenty of opportunity to choose to believe things that are fact-based and rooted in empirical evidence rather than just deciding to believe whatever it is that they prefer to be true. And don't get me wrong, I, I uh, lean in that direction and very much want for that to be true. But the fact is, it's more complicated than that. Even things like a person demanding proof Demanding evidence, thinking critically, trusting science. These are all actually socially constructed beliefs. Many people are taught to trust authority rather than question it. Many people are taught to take beliefs on faith and are discouraged from demanding proof. So when science, you know, begins to run afoul of these sorts of beliefs, you know, whether it's a geocentric view of the solar system or creationism or, or just the dominion theology that's pretty much permeated, you know, practically everyone on the planet that, that's propping up the system of capitalism currently uh, ravaging the environment and everyone thinks like, well, but, you know, we, we control all this stuff. We're allowed to do what we want with it. You know, millions have been primed from birth to see the challenges of science on their belief systems as reason enough to question science itself and the value of critical thought altogether. And, you know, you wouldn't blame a child for holding the misguided beliefs of their parents. But when the beliefs that are being instilled include the systematic discouraging of critical thought, it's like preventing a muscle from developing. You know, you, you can't then be mad at the grown person for being weak and atrophied when their parents are the ones who kept them intellectually bedridden, all while you know doing just what they thought was best based on their beliefs. So those people were denied the chance to exercise those intellectual muscles early on, and so it's no wonder they grow up without an empirical view of the world. 
So as I said, I, I am as determined as ever to fight against the systems of thought that infuse our society from top to bottom, causing harms as small as microaggressions and as large as environmental collapse. And I certainly feel frustration. I'm not, I'm not claiming uh, to have any uh, Buddha-level acceptance of the world as it is or anything, but the anger really does seem to be gone. And my hope is that this is a good thing and, uh, and that it helps put me in a better position to help make the kinds of changes we need to see. But what I know for sure is that I feel better on a personal level than I ever have before even while still being completely immersed in the world of politics, as terrible as it is right now. So that certainly doesn't mean that I feel good about the current state of affairs or the trajectory we seem to be on. But with the anger under control, I can focus on just doing the work. Anger eats away at your own soul, and it hurts you. Everybody has a right to be angry. Everybody has a right to be frustrated. But if you give in to your anger and your frustrations, you know, you're going to lose. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202 999 We just heard clips today from Finding Fred. That's the Fred Rogers podcast. It's a limited series. I recommend you check out the whole thing. Democracy Now!, a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, In the Thick, Interfaith Voices, The Real News, part of my commentary from episode 1258, The Art and Science of Apologies and Forgiveness from March 23rd, 2019. If you want to check out that whole episode, I think I think the intro and the final comments in that episode were some of the best I have ever done. Uh, and then also from Big Think, and then clips from King in the Wilderness. As I said, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. If you have thoughts on today's topic or anything else, I always love to hear from you. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.